Hey there, and welcome to Everyday Awesome, a podcast featuring dynamic discussions with interesting, innovative, and inspiring people from all walks of life. I'm your host, Trisha G., and I'm excited and grateful you are here. I was that kid who pretended to interview people using a paper towel tube microphone, and I had a great time doing that. And today I'm having an even better time taking that playful reporter style passion to a real mic to bring you fun and enlightened conversations with amazing people doing awesome things. People who are game changers, inspiring themselves and others, never letting adversity stop them, impacting the world around them, and having a blast on the journey of this thing that we all call life. You may be wondering why listen to this podcast and who the heck is Trisha G? (laughs) Well, I love learning and connecting, and my background as a teacher, therapist, endurance cyclist, coach, and nonprofit leader have guided me to create this podcast for you. In each episode, my guests will be sharing nuggets of successful strategies, tips, and inspiration to lift your spirits, ignite your soul, and elevate your day. Stick around, hit play, and together, let's make every day awesome. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Every Day Awesome. It is my pleasure to be here with you today for an hour of inspiration and conversation that hopefully will ignite your soul and elevate your day. It is an honor for me today to have an amazing woman, medical physician associate, community member, friend, mother, Mimi, which is grandma, and just all around beautiful soul in this world on my show today. She will inspire you to want to do more, to be more, and to help more. I've had the pleasure of spending time with her, and I consider her a mentor and a good friend in my life. My guest is Elizabeth Ennis Beth, as she likes to be called. She is joining us from Hawaii, where she is having a much-deserved vacation celebrating her birthday and the life that she has created. Beth is a physician associate and has her Master's of Physician Assistant Studies. As she shares her story, you will be even more impressed by the fact that she has this education and that she has this medical path that she is on. She's been working in healthcare for the past 11 years and currently works for a nonprofit in California providing medical care to homeless. She is also a mom to three amazing young men and Mimi to five grandchildren. She describes providing care to our most vulnerable as coming full circle for her because she has walked in a similar path. She will tell us a bit about her history of growing up with abuse, trauma, addiction, and even jail time to how she found her way to sobriety, going back to school and creating a life that she is proud of and that she loves, a life that she loves for herself, but also a life that she believes her purpose is to pay it forward and help others. So buckle up, get your favorite beverage and get ready for an amazing conversation with Elizabeth Beth Ennis. Welcome, Elizabeth, Beth, as you like to go by. Welcome, Beth, to Everyday Awesome. It is so good to have you. Thank you. It's very good to be here. Beth, where are you right now? So I am in Waianee, which is on the west coast of Oahu. And this is a birthday trip. Is that right? It is. Yes. I had a recent birthday where I am. I turned 54 and... 
this is my birthday present is to come to Hawaii. This is a bucket list item for me. I've never been and I've always wanted to go. And here it is. It is possible. Yay! Well, aloha twice to you. <laughs> and I just, it's funny, I had Anne Louise Gittleman on my show recently. She's a nutritionist and an author. And, but her, she just came out with a new book and it's about healthy aging. And she has a perspective on aging that I loved. And she said that aging is a privilege that it's a gift for us to be able to age. So it actually changed the way I see my birthdays now. So I look at it as, oh, 50, you know, because I'm 53 and you just turned 54. And I'm like, yeehaw, that is worth celebrating. Well, you know, it is so cliche, but really life is exactly what you dare to make it. You know, if you dare to step forward and step into exactly who you are and what you really deserve, the universe rises up to meet you. And the more I settle into realizing that that's true, the more it becomes true, which is totally amazing and super cool. (laughs) (laughs) It's definitely super cool. And what you just shared, you know, life being what you dare to make it, uh, reminds me of Joseph McClendon, who uh, is a neuropsychologist and a speaker, and he works with Tony Robbins, and he's somebody I just adore and is incredibly wise and has somewhat of a similar situation to what we're going to chat about today, having gone from being homeless to rising up and becoming somebody who focuses his career and his purpose in life to making lives better. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, it's truly an honor to have you on the show. And I shared a bit about your background and profession with our listeners before you came on today from your patio overlooking the ocean, which made me a little jelly, I have to say. (laughs) (laughs) And I have been and continue to be impressed and inspired by you, what you have overcome, the person you are in the world, your commitment to yourself, your family, and helping homeless through your medical training and work. It's truly an honor. To, to have you on Everyday Awesome. And so I'm just going to dive right in. And one of the things that I love hearing about people, I find it fascinating and enjoyable, is to learn about where people come from, you know, what their life has been like and what has contributed to them being the person they are today. Tell us a bit about your background, Beth. Where did you grow up and what was life like for you as a youngster? I grew up in the Midwest from a very nuclear family. You know, I had my mom and my dad. I have half siblings that were already grown once I was, once I came along because I was born and my parents were in their forties. And back in the sixties, that was kind of like a really unique thing to happen. So there was a lot of addiction. My dad was a raging alcoholic and my mom would take pills to deal with him as she always had back pain. And you know, he was violent, he was abusive, there was always fighting. And, you know, at the age of 13, I discovered how to do drugs and get high. And that became my escape. It became a coping mechanism to deal with so much trauma. And, you know, I didn't realize at the time, because that was just the example that I was given. Nobody in my family had an education. You know, my dad worked at a company where he was like a machine shop worker. And my mom was a stay at home mom. So like, is very typical lower middle class. We grew, I grew up in a trailer park and um, it was just, um, there was a lot of experiences that children shouldn't experience. You know, I had to grow up a lot faster than I should have. And I didn't make good decisions, you know. I Understandable. 
did what I thought I was supposed to be doing. You know, I didn't really have guidance and, you know, I quit high school. I wasn't, it never occurred to me that I, I needed to like, you know, finish school and get an education so I can go out there and work and have a job. So it just like those pieces weren't available to me at the time to be able to connect the dots. And I, you know, it's like, you don't know what you don't know. Absolutely. You don't know what you don't know. That's really well said. And we also know what we see and how we're raised. There's so much modeling that happens for us and coping, you know, how we cope with what happens in our lives. And you were raised by people who were coping with whatever their trauma was, whatever their challenges were by using substances. And so it's around you, it's accessible and it's, well, that's what you're supposed to do. And I think that happens for a lot of people who end up falling into addiction as a way of coping with, and especially trauma. I know you had talked about, you've been, thank you for being so open and honest and intimate with, with us, our listeners and myself about your background, because it's something that you've had to work through and create the life that you want by going through a lot of transition. You're 26 years sober from addiction. So congratulations. That is phenomenal. Absolutely phenomenal. And how did you overcome addiction? So I took the hard road. I have a very strong-willed personality to begin with. And it's a challenge for me to be told what to do or how to do it or when to do it. And so I had this attitude, you can't tell me what to do. I'm going to do my own thing. And a series of events just kind of fell together and I became homeless and lived in my car with my kids. My kids ended up in foster care and I ended up in jail. Oh, let, let's go back for a minute because I realized I basically jumped you way ahead from what life was like growing up to when you were an adult. And so you, you went through your youth by using drugs and alcohol. Was that kind of your thing? Really? Cocaine, marijuana, and then I got into methamphetamines. And, you know, that progressively got worse as I got older and made more friends <laughs> um, yes. that really aren't your friends. I just made more connections with people that were in that scene could be, because it, could, it becomes like a subculture, you know, and you, the, the more you associate with people who do drugs and who live that lifestyle, the farther away you become from people who don't, you know, because like you don't want to associate with people who don't do drugs because then you become like the one who's, who's not part of the social circle. And some of the mentality is tribal. I got your back. You got my back. When really they ain't got your back. <laughs> you have each other's back as long as you're getting what you need or want. Exactly. It's really helpful to hear what you shared about you feel like you get farther and farther away from people who aren't using, which I would think makes it even harder to consider quitting or to consider making that change because you're giving up. I mean, if you have a family life where you don't feel like you're getting your needs met there, and then you have a group of people that you feel like you, you believe they're going to have your back, you believe they're your friends, uh, you fit in, you get each other, and to even think of giving that up when you don't even think you could go hang out with other people or go in a different direction, it almost is a perpetuating cycle of just staying, staying stuck. It becomes like a vortex. 
you know, where you feel like you can't get out and you just get sucked in and you feel lost and you feel trapped and ultimately isolated and alone, which is oftentimes not the reason that you start doing drugs and stuff like that in the first place is because it's a social thing. It's like years ago when people used to smoke, they would go out and they would smoke and it was a social thing to go out on break and have a cigarette and blah, blah, blah. I've never smoked cigarettes, but it's along the same line of thought. That's crazy to me to hear that. I mean, crazy in a, I understand way. And it's powerful to hear it, that you're doing something that's social, that you're with other people, but you feel so alone. And I, I know somebody who is also in recovery 27 years. And I'm just so impressed and has said to me that when she was using, it felt like that first high that you get, the first few highs that you get when you first start and you're young, because I think she started around 12 or 13, is, is amazing. The feeling is so amazing. And then everything after that is trying to get that back. You're just trying to get that feeling again. And you can never have the same feeling. And you hate yourself for not being able to stop going after it, but you never get it again. And so that's the addiction part is you don't even, you just hate yourself for being that, that addicted to something and not being able to stop, but you're constant. You just can't give up that. I'm going to get that high again. Or, and then it's just this loop and you're stuck. She described feeling very stuck and hating herself. And that's, that just breaks my heart, you know, to, to hear that people go through that. And you, so we kind of jumped ahead, but you mentioned that you had children and how did you have, I mean, I know how you had your children. <laughs> I was going to say, how did you have your children? That's a different episode. But (laughs) how did that happen? Did you marry somebody? Did you meet somebody in high school or junior? How did you end up with children? So I, once I turned 18, I met a guy and immediately moved out of my parents' house. You know, I was free, 18, out the door. Yep. Stay together and we got married and... We planned to have our first child and we had him. And then I realized that that wasn't the right fit for me. We're still friends today, which some people find very strange, but, you know, we get along way better now than we ever did when we were married. So, you know, friendship is good and just, it wasn't a right fit for us, but we had a child. And, you know, once I realized that that wasn't going to be the happily ever after married and white picket fence kind of thing. I was like, oh, dang, how am I going to feed this kid? You know, how am I going to put a roof over their head? How am I going to take care of them? Because all of a sudden now I had a purpose. I had a purpose outside of myself because I didn't feel worthy enough to make myself the priority before I had a kid. So my oldest child is, was kind of a, he kind of propelled me into getting some sort of education. So I got my GED and I went to school and I became a respiratory therapist. Although there's ups and downs with going to school to become a respiratory therapist for me, it was a one-year program and it took me three years to complete it. You know, because I had, even though I wasn't using while I was going to school and stuff like that, like I still had a lot of maladaptive behaviors. You know, I, I really was like mouthy and I didn't handle authority very well. i I've kind of learned how to calm some of that. <laughs> that sounds and, like a good, a good thing to learn. <laughs> I, well, yeah. I mean, and it wasn't something that I learned while I was growing up, how to, you know, handle situations without just like freaking out, you know? So I got kicked out of school once and then one of the schools closed 
So it took me three years to finish a one-year program, but I finally finished it and I got a job and I was working for a travel company. And then I met somebody else who took me deeper into the, the darker sides of addiction and stuff like that, gang stuff. And I thought we were going to be together forever. And so I let you know, my job go. And I just dove deeper into the addiction and that wasn't where I needed to be. And I had another kid in the meantime. The disease of addiction is so powerful. It's tricky. It's smart. It's manipulative. And it changes your thought process into rationalizing and finding excuses and making inappropriate things appropriate and okay. You know, it's kind of like a mind bending kind of experience, you know? Absolutely. I mean, literally, it literally is changing chemistry. It's changing our neurological structure of our brain. I mean, it's changing us. And there's a psychological aspects to it. And so many, everything, uh, what you're saying makes sense. Hearing it is touching my heart for you and for everybody who has been through addiction, because there is that powerless feeling and that you're not your best self and you know it. And you had that side of you that was speaking to you saying, okay, I have children. This is not who I want to be. This is not healthy. I know this is not right. And so you had that, the voice coming and what motivated you or what inspired you to, what led to you quitting? I mean, it's 26 years ago. How did you stop? How did you break that cycle and that conversation that was happening in your head? The addiction conversation. There was really a moment of a kind of a coming to, so to speak, coming to Jesus moment I had with myself in the darkest parts of my drug use. And I remember sitting there alone and I remember feeling, you know, I, I, I felt suicidal and I, I wrote out a note to, you know, my kids telling them how much I love them, but I couldn't, I couldn't be the type of parent that they deserved and all of that kind of stuff. And, you know, I remember just like crying and feeling like this, I could never break free. Like I'll never be able to break free. This is the only life that I know. I don't know how to have another life that isn't, you know, doesn't involve drugs. And especially while my kids were in foster care, it was really hard. And then I decided, you know, wait a minute, I can do better. You know, there's some sort of spiritual guide inside of all of us that knows how to keep us alive. It knows how to keep us surviving just one more day, you know, one more minute, like take that next breath, take that next step. Sometimes you're terrified. And so I was with this guy at the time and we decided we were going to move away. We were going to move out of the area because all of our friends were going to jail. They were going to prison um, or they were dead. You know, we were, we were deep in a dark world and we escaped. And on our way, on our journey from like, we were living in Arizona at the time we were moving to Florida. And in between in Texas, we had, we had been out of drugs for like six days and there's that whole emotional kind of come down, you know, with crystal meth, you don't really have a physical like addiction withdrawal. It's all psychological. And we were arguing in a truck stop in Texas on, on a super highway that was like a drug trafficking highway that we had no idea was a drug trafficking highway. And so in Texas, it's against the law to argue with people in public. You can't raise your voice to another person. Really? This is true? 
This is very true. So somebody called the police and they, um, the police swarmed us, swarmed us like SWAT team at the truck stop. And they're, you know, I've never been in trouble with the law before. You know, I've always narrowly escaped so many times things that I should have been in trouble for and didn't get in trouble for. And the police were like, do you have any drugs or weapons in the car? And me and my addicted mind, I was like, no, man, we've been out of dope for six days. It sucks. You know, <laughs> I was always taught, you know, you cooperate with law enforcement and they won't give you a hard time or whatever. So I had this bag that was like a makeup bag or whatever that had all of our paraphernalia in it. We hadn't quite gotten rid of that. There, we had planned to have like this ritual ceremony at the border of Florida and we were going to set it on fire and blah, blah, blah. And that was going to be the end of that world and that life. Well, when I showed them the bag that had the paraphernalia, they confiscated it, of course. I know there wasn't any drugs in there because we scraped that stuff dry. <laughs> <laughs> and um, they arrested us for possession of controlled substance, less than one gram methamphetamines. And what they did is they sent the paraphernalia to a lab and had it lab evaluated for residue and charged us with felony controlled substance possession. Without having the possession of the actual drugs. Oh, there's residue drug on the paraphernalia. But that's it. You can't get even high off of the residue, right? I mean, it's not enough to do anything with. That's correct. But in law, it doesn't matter what you can do with it. What mattered was that we had possession of it. It did, And it was less than a gram because, you know, there was like nothing there. But in Texas, because it was methamphetamines, it was a felony. The fact that you are sober today is even more impressive to me because you get, you decide to change your life after writing a suicide note, after feeling like you're never going to get back to a life that you really want and can provide for your children and be the kind of parent you want to be. And you get past that, find that strength in you, that part of you that spoke to you and, and with your partner and you both decide to become clean and you make it six days, you have a goal, you have a mission, you're going to go and you're moving somewhere else and you're going to do a ritual and start this new life and you get arrested and you still ended up clean. <laughs> I mean, that's stressful. That would be very hard to, or maybe that was even more motivation to, to stay clean. Oh man, let me tell you, jail's no fun. I spent four months in jail. In Texas? Yes, in Texas, in Beaumont, Texas. You know, they have that whole thing, don't mess with Texas. Mm. Believe them. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, wow. So you spent four months and you were separated from your, and you were, were you partnered at the time? You weren't married to this gentleman. This was. No, we weren't married. We eventually did get married after we got out of jail and we got married and. We were together almost 20 years and then he oh. relapsed. Oh, okay. So you got out of jail and you, and you stayed sober together after that? Hmm. For a very oh. long time. Oh, I, congr- I, I stayed clean. He didn't. Oh, congratulations. I just want to say that because even just hearing this, you know, I'm getting a little teary. I'm so touched by just your tenacity. And like you said, you know, when you commit to something, it sounds like you're somebody who, you know, dog with a bone, you're going to do it. You're going to do it. So when you were doing drugs, okay, I'm going to do drugs. (laughs) When I quit, I quit. 
go big or go home, right? <laughs> go big or go home, go big or go home. So I'm just congratulations to you and to him as well, because you both went through this together and got clean together and made a path together. And did you have another child together? I know, you, or you, you have two boys, but you said you have three. And I think one is. One child that we had once we got clean and we got to Florida and we started living our life, his son was with his ex-wife who was also in active addiction. And we got possession of this child. We got custody of the child. And so we raised him. So I raised. So you raised three boys. Thank God for him that he was able. Oh, thank God. Good. So we raised him as our own. So we raised three boys together and they were, you know, right now they're, 29, 30, and 31. So it was like all right in a row, all, and we did the typical family things. You know, we, kids were involved in soccer. They were involved in band. Well, they were involved in ROTC. One actually ended up being in the active military in the Air Force. And just it, we had the white picket fence for a while. We had Mm -hmm. our own, we, you know, and it was a, a successful business. And, no, I continued to practice being a respiratory therapist once I was able to get licensed. And, you know, there were a lot of hoops I had to jump through to be able to work in the healthcare field as a result of my felony conviction. It just breaks my heart. That just seems so wrong to have a felony conviction of something that you were already had put behind you. I mean, not six days, but still you had put it behind you. And now you have to carry that with you. And I guess it can be in how you look at it, like you said earlier, Life is what you make it. So it could be something that's looked at. If that hadn't happened, maybe you wouldn't have stayed clean. Maybe it's something that is a badge of honor, even though it can create some challenges in certain situations. It does create challenges. You know, I mean, whenever I apply for a license in a different state, I have to go before the medical board and I have to present my case and explain what happened and they have to have a board meeting and they have to vote whether or not they're going to allow me to be licensed. And, you know, I'm licensed in three different States. I'm licensed in Hawaii. I'm licensed in California and I'm licensed in um, Florida to be able to practice medicine. And I have a DEA license that that was actually easier to get, which is odd to me than getting licensed to practice medicine as a result of my criminal background, but I've done the extra work and jumped through the extra hoops to be able to do that. And I'm going to wave that like a banner. (laughs) (laughs) You go girl, you wave that. (laughs) Can you share what DEA stands for? I have a prescriptive authority to be able to prescribe controlled substances when necessary and needed for patients. Let's say if you break your leg, you know, I can prescribe for you pain medicine. What have you found that works for people to, you know, kind of kick addiction and stay abstinent? What do you think it takes? What it, is it different for everybody or is there any particular examples or experiences that you think can help people uh, stay abstinent? I think there's a lot of commingling with mental health disorders, with depression, with bipolar, with schizophrenia. And In order to be able to maintain any kind of abstinence or sobriety or recovery, you have to address that as well. You know, for a long time, for many years, I was on antidepressants. And, you know, that was also part of what helped me maintain my thought process in a proper, you know, flowing way where like not 
everything was catastrophic and, you know, the end of the world kind of thing. And it gave me a little bit of a reprieve from all of those emotions that come up when you first get clean, because when you're using, you don't really have emotions except maybe anger and despair. So when you get clean, all those other emotions that you have stuffed by using drugs start to surface and they can be overwhelming and it can suck you back into the addiction, active addiction. That's why addiction is so cunning, baffling and powerful, you know, because it, it just, it's so smart the way it like just kind of weaves its way into your life and into your thought process. You like, you really have to guard the gate. Mm, guard the gate. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, right now you work as a physician's associate. You're out in the field. You're meeting homeless people where they are to provide medical care and consultation. And I think that is such important work, especially now. Homelessness is an important and frequent topic in our country with more and more people becoming homeless and living in encampments and tents being seen on the side of freeways in neighborhoods. It's estimated that close to 600,000 people just last year in 2020 were, were homeless. And that's an increase of 12,000 people from the year before in 2019. So it's, it's incredibly visible to us all, yet there seems to be confusion about how to create change for people without homes, as one of our friend's sons, Logan, calls it, <laughs> or likes to say. We often hear about cities dedicating more and more funding to help, but the incidence of people being homeless seems worse. So the solution to what might truly help at the core of homelessness and true support for people to build a more stable life seems to be eluding us in some ways. And what you just said makes a lot of sense as to one of the reasons that this can happen is if there's, you know, chicken or the egg, mental health issue or addiction first you can have a mental health issue you end up using as a way of coping or you end up using. And then once you get off, like you said, all these other emotions come up. So there's a mental health factor for a lot of people, I think, who end up homeless and they're not getting the treatment that they need. So your work as a physician's associate out in the field, what is your role and what is a day like for you at work, working directly with people who are in that, in that situation? that you have been in yourself. I get to be able to go into encampments. My team and I, we go into the encampments where these people live in their little, you know, tent cities or, you know, tents that are on along the road, along the freeway or along rivers. I mean, we walk into the encampments and, you know, sometimes what they need is just for somebody to sit and listen to them. You know, how many times do you walk down the street and you see a homeless person and you turn your head and you look the other way so that they don't bother you? Those are the invisible people. They are not seen. They're seen by society as like a scourge. And, you know, people, people want to look away. They don't want to, you know, oh, I don't want to talk to them. I don't want to see that. But they're humans. You know, they're people, they've had lives, they've had family, they've had kids, you know, they're just like us in a different situation. And we're so close to being in that situation. It's really frightening. You know, how many people live nowadays paycheck to paycheck? And if something happened, like, let's say, for example, they get COVID and that's two weeks with no paycheck. You know, not every state has the 
services that California does as far as like with like short-term disability or social services to be able to help kind of pick up some of that cash flow. Um, there's a lot of states like Florida, for example, they don't have that kind of stuff there. In Florida, it's really about, oh, well, we're just going to make it illegal for them to live here and it's illegal for them to sleep in a park and it's illegal to feed homeless in a public setting. And it's like, but they're still there. Mm-hmm. You know, you're not fixing the problem. You're just trying to brush it under the rug. The problem is they need affordable housing. A lot of these people have income, you know, but let's say a lot of them are old, like in their 70s, 60s, 70s and 80s, and they're old and they have a fixed income. Let's say they're, you know, they didn't work a lot when they were, when they were younger or they had a minimal paying job, like, you know, person who digs ditches or works in food services, they don't make a lot of money. So at, by the time it's time for them to retire or if they get injured and they have disability, they get maybe five to $900 a month to live on. And some of them are just outside of the range of getting food stamps because their income is just a little too high for food stamps. So they have to find their own way for food or co-pays for medications. And yet, you know, housing is ridiculous. Housing is so expensive you can't rent like a studio apartment for less than $900 a month. And that's a room with like a stove, you know, that's not even like a one bedroom apartment. And certainly it's not in a safe area. You're speaking to so much that, and this is very, very helpful to hear and to hear what, because you're in the encampments, you're spending time, you're having conversations, you're seeing the diversity of what contributes to somebody not having a home and not having stability. And I have heard that there are many causes for homelessness, including what you're mentioning is somebody's just, they don't have family. So they don't have a safety net of family to go live with. If something happens, like they become ill or as they age, there isn't affordable places to live. If you're older, you're, you're fam- you don't have family, you don't have close friends that you can stay with or that will help you. And so, and they're just, just above the income limit to be able to get some of the help. I've also heard about people who have ended up homeless because they had addiction at a younger age, being raised in foster homes, numerous foster homes without stability as children. They can't turn 18. They don't know what to do or how to take care of themselves. So they end up going and making those decisions where they can at least be with somebody who seems like they care at the time or people who have children who have gone through sex trafficking or abuse loss of employment, like you described, mental illness that doesn't go treated, brain injury that doesn't go treated. There's a lot of factors that contribute to it. And it sounds like so many different types of root causes that we need to think of as a society to address. It's a problem for society to know, well, what do we do and how do we help people who are homeless? How do we acknowledge them? And then how do we actually help people to to end homelessness, to reduce homelessness. And what are your thoughts on that? So in the past year, due to COVID, you know, the governor of California has enacted a program called Project Room Key. And it was a way to get our populations most vulnerable, the homeless people, up off the streets so that they can shelter in place and stay safe. Because They have higher comorbidities. They have a higher rate of getting infected. They have a higher rate of having bad outcomes because their their overall health isn't that great to begin with. 
you know, there's a lot of diabetes and there's a lot of heart disease as a result of poor nutrition. You know, there is a food desert in our country. In the abundance of all the food that we have, there's a food desert for healthy, nutritious, viable food that everyone has access to. I know where I live in Stockton and where some of these encampments are, there's no grocery store for miles. Like it's not accessible. So then there's corner stores, there's convenient marks, and they don't sell good food there. You know, that's all processed food. So then they start having, you know, they start developing diabetes. Well, that puts them at higher risk for having a bad outcome for getting COVID. Okay. So that kind of sets the stage for what the whole purpose for the Project Room Key was. We took people off the street. We as a collective, meaning, you know, county workers, mental health, behavioral health, community medical centers, the Stockton shelters, all of us, we collectively worked at trying to get people into a hotel that was subsidized by the government. Okay. There were certain things that they had, they were guidelines that they had to adhere to. They had to, you know, shelter in place. They weren't allowed to just come and go as they want, you know, because the whole purpose of having them there was to keep them protected. And if you're just going to come and go as you want and do your thing, well, that's not going to protect you. Mm-hmm. So that project has come to an end and there have been new opportunities open up on a much smaller scale to be able to transition those people who have done well and who have started to thrive and who have gotten their medical care back on board, who have gotten their behavioral health back on board because they haven't been worried about having shelter and being worried about, you know, being attacked in the middle of the night and all of their stuff stolen in the middle of the night. They've been able to kind of pull themselves together. They've been able to like take showers, sleep in a bed, you know, have air conditioning and just normal things that we take for granted. To be so that they can kind of step back and see, oh, yeah, maybe I do need to talk with a counselor. Oh, maybe I do need to talk with a substance use recovery center. Maybe I do need some behavioral health or mental health services where I can get on some meds and, you know, stabilize my moods, not being so, you know, erratic. And yeah, I can go get that cardiac cath and that heart stent done because now I don't have to worry about where am I going to go if if I go get this done and then I'm going to go back out into the street and sleep in my tent. I mean, it has to start with housing. The answer to homelessness is housing. It's not mental health services. It's not behavioral health. It's not social services. It's housing. It's affordable housing. Absolutely. Because what you're describing is if somebody has stable housing, then it's a wraparound. The stable housing itself creates a wraparound environment where, and also I I would imagine the having people shelter. So it's here's housing and you have to stay here for a period of time. And during that period of time, there's not an opportunity to go out and get drugs or to go out and do things that might cause harm or to go out and get attacked and have things stolen. Or it gives that safety of I'm okay here. I don't have to worry about somebody harming me. I have food. I have, I can get medical care, which I didn't think I could get when I was homeless, you know, out in the encampment in a tent. So it, it gives that stability of so many different things, nutrition, safety, medical care, and security. For a period of time. And then you're saying that for a lot of people that actually started to shift them into, okay, now I believe I can create a different life. I believe. And so now I'm going to work with the social workers. I'm going to. So it also is, is empowering on a level that then can create 
lasting change. And so it's the housing with the support network that will come with that. Mm-hmm. But that there has to be, and you're right, we do take it for granted that you, to be having showers and shelter and safety, I mean, we, it is something that you just sort of assume that you're going to have. And we worry about other things in life. But uh, when you use like Maslow's hierarchy, when you take away your basic, your basic shelter, air, water, food needs, then we cannot even focus on anything else that in life until we have that basic shelter, right? So that's what you're speaking to. And I think that that makes a lot of sense. And how did you, so you've shared with me that your purpose, your passion is, and I see it, I see it in posts that you do on Facebook. I see it in the work that you do. I see it on your face when we're talking. How did you know that that was your purpose and why is it your purpose to, and what, what actually is your purpose? Share it with our listener. I've never really like put it into words, but it's like, you know, my purpose is to share with others. I want to be like a reflection for them. Like I want to be that person who holds that mirror up and says, look, look at that. Look at how amazing you are. Like, like you have all of these gifts. Everybody has gifts. Everybody has a talent. Everybody has the ability to be amazing because we start off being amazing. <laughs> and you, when you look at a newborn baby, there is nothing that isn't magical about that child. You don't look at that child and think, oh, well, you know, they, you know they're not going to be able to do this or they can't do that. We have thrown that at them as society. To, to teach them that they can't do this and teach them that they're not good enough for that. And my purpose is to show them that, yes, they are. Even when they've hit what's seemingly bottom and they've lost that belief in themselves. And that's where you find it. And you're able to express your purpose in working with people who are homeless. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I had... I had the magical gift of being able to participate in feeding gratitude and it just clicked. This is what I want to do. Mm-hmm. This is what I be doing because I bring a unique lived experience where I can connect to these people and I can show them that there is a way out, that there's possibility for hope, that there's a life out there outside of where they are right now. If they want it. You know, I'm not there to shove it down their throat. I'm there. It, it's like, here's the gifts of life. You have this opportunity. I can help you if you want me to. And if you don't right now, that's okay. I'll still be right here. Oh, that I think is such a beautiful gift. When somebody says to you, okay, even if you're not ready, I'm here when you are. I'm not going to just abandon you because you're caught up in addiction or whatever it might be. I'm here when you're ready. And like you said, we have to want it. We have to want change. And, you know, you can, you can lead us to water, but you can't make us drink. And it's (laughs) maybe not the best analogy given we're talking about addiction, but but it's, it's true. You know, we, (laughs) we have to, we have to want it and we have to find that whatever it is that inspires us. And for you, like you said, it was an inner voice that said, I can be more. I don't have to take my life. I don't have to abandon my children because I don't believe I can be more. Actually, I do. I believe I can be more and I'm going to go after that. It's, it was something that's clicked and snapped inside of you. And we all, everybody has that in them to find that moment. And you want to be that light 
that mirror that says you, you can if you want and you're not alone. And that message, I think, is a big one, is that you're letting people know they're not alone and you're providing invaluable life-saving medical care mm-hmm. to people who would not be able to have access to it. Well, so you seem so happy to be a Mimi to five grandchildren, and you have shared with me in our conversations that you're so proud of your grown, your men, your grown (laughs) men children, (laughs) and you have the five grandchildren. And so for you, family is, is, and one of your inspirations that, that got you to, to get clean and to stay 26 years in this life that you clearly love. I mean, I've spent time with you and you emanate. I think it's very clear that you're somebody who is proud of yourself, is honored to be of service and who lives, you're very passionate. You have a lot of adventures and you're, you're traveling and you're, you're sharing love with people. And I mean, it just seems like you have a life that you really probably dreamed of and made happen. When I was younger, I never dreamed that life could really be like this. Mm. Oh, I've, I've met a really, really amazing man. I met him on a dating site, you know, online dating kind of thing. And I was in a point in my life where I really had taken dating off the table because I'd have too many toxic relationships. So I needed to work on my relationship with myself. And I had done that. And then I didn't need a relationship anymore. And then he came along. Uh, oh no, it's like all those rom-coms, all the movies. <laughs> they're true, they're true. <laughs> Wonderful. And we have we have a, a long distance relationship. You know, he lives in Florida. I, I live in California. And, you know, we, we get together and every time we get together, it's very comfortable. It's very natural. It's very organic, you know, and we're very opposite. I absolutely adore your partner, Jimmy, the golden boy. He is on one of my episodes. So for you, the listener, if you want to meet her, honey, who is an amazing, amazing man, he's a few episodes back and uh, really an, an incredible person who has his own dental practice for many, many years and has been doing pro wrestling on the side as a hobby for many years. And he is, you know, similar to you in that very passionate, very driven, inspired to make lives better and to just really grab life and swing it around and have a great time. Like he's just all in, all in. And you are that way as well. So I could see how you would fit in that sense. And then the bringing of the differences. I think you nailed it when you said that you, you work because in in large part, because you don't have judgment of each other's differences. And I think that we need more of that in our country and maybe even globally, but it's, it really is a great way to be in general is you don't have to agree. You don't have to see things the same way, no matter what the topic is, but you can always listen and hear someone, even if you're not going to agree, you can hear, you can listen and you can just not judge the differences, but still love and respect people. And I love that. And I love seeing you two together. So I wanted to ask you, what inspires you, Beth? What lights you up? There are a lot of things that light me up, so to speak. But to be honest, what really goes to the core of my soul is whether I'm in, a, in an interaction with one of my patients or whether I'm dealing with my grandchildren or whether I'm dealing with my kids 
or other people around me. It's like, I have a superpower. I have the ability to be able to look at someone and I, I take the time and I look them in the eye and I really reach them. Like I can connect on a level that often people aren't used to being connected like that. And that's what our, our whole society needs. Like that's what the world needs is connection, you know? And when you feel that connection with somebody, like it, it, it touches your soul. Mm-hmm. It's like leaving glitter on people's souls. <laughs> I you know? love that analogy. I, I have to say, I, so what really inspires and lights you up is true, deep, intimate connection. I know this is, might seem like a, a strange question, but it's one that I ask all of my guests. Who is Elizabeth Ennis? Hmm. Elizabeth Ennis is a fierce force to be reckoned with. She is a fighter for justice, for truth, for people living in their true spirit. It's not about this person has this or that person has this. It's like we deserve to be exactly who we are. And I will champion that cause to the end. You are my new favorite superhero. (laughs) <laughs> you just described a superhero in my mind. <laughs> well, so I have two more questions. We're almost out of time. Two more questions for you. Um, in each episode of Everyday Awesome, I like to leave the listener with three key actionable takeaways that they can implement in their lives that will support their goals in stepping up and making not only their life better, but the lives of others. So what are three things that you do each day that you have found sets you up to live the life that you love for yourself, but also in helping others? Every day in the morning when I get up, I do this thing called priming, which I'm sure you're familiar with. I love priming. And um, this is why we get along so well. (laughs) And this can be looked up for the listener. This can be looked up on YouTube. Uh, There's there's different ways of doing priming, but it's, it's a conscious focus on either meditation or your intention for your day. And there's different ways to do it, but you can look up priming on YouTube and find videos that will help walk you through that. It's really powerful. And it sets your day. It literally sets your tone, the tone for your day. What are two other things that you do? So throughout my day, you know, sometimes it can be very hectic. And I know when I start to feel, you know, I'm an empath. I, I'm I'm an ENFP, and for those of you that want to look it up, um, that's fine. You know, I'm very Briggs. Yeah, I'm very outgoing. I'm very, you know, I'm all about connecting with people, and like being around people energizes me. And being in the environment with all the homeless encampments, sometimes, you know, sometimes you you take on that sadness and and that that despair. And I need to always be mindful of how much of that I'm letting in. I know I can't save the world, but I might be able to save one. Yes. And that quite honestly is one of the reasons I wanted you on my show, because I feel like if even just one person hears this episode and realizes that they're capable of breaking addiction or making change in their life that they so desperately want, but are not sure how to do, they have heard from someone who's been there. And 
how can our listener be in touch with you? So I work for a nonprofit organization called Community Medical Centers based out of Stockton, California. You can reach me through CMC. We do have a website, a webpage on Facebook. It's, um, I think it's Community Medical Centers on Facebook. I'll send you I'll the link. I'll make sure I put that in the notes. And do you have an email? Can people email you directly? Yes, I will give you the email as well. I'll put that in the show notes for the listener to, to check out. Yeah, and people can always donate to CMC because we are a nonprofit. No donation is too small. Although it's not a commercial for CMC. Really, when you see a homeless person out there on the street, don't look away. You know, take the risk and make that connection. You'll you, really, it's not as scary as you think. You know, most homeless people are pretty docile and they've just, they've gotten themselves into a bad situation and they've got amazing stories and they deserve to be heard and they deserve to be seen. Volunteer in a shelter, you know, volunteer at your local church, at your local meals. What I'm walking away with even more so is that we are all people who are trying to do the best that we can, who have different circumstances, yet the same goal to try to live our best life and to try to find a way to be the best that we can be even when we're struggling. We're, we're all very similar in a lot of ways. So to be there for each other and to connect, like, like what inspires you, we need to connect with each other. And I think that anybody listening to this episode is going to walk away feeling inspired and ignited to do more, do more for themselves, but to do more for others. And it has been an absolute treat for me to have this conversation with you. I'm so jealous that you're in Hawaii. Thank you for being on Everyday Awesome, especially from Hawaii. You took the time to be here to, to, again, to help others. So thank you so much. And it's wonderful to talk to you. And I so look forward to seeing you again in person. Yay, that would be great. Yeah, I know. Thank you, listener, for being here with Beth Ennis and Trisha G for another episode of Everyday Awesome. I hope that you find some awe in your everyday. This is Trisha G signing off. Until next time. Hey there, and thanks for listening to this week's episode of Everyday Awesome. How lucky are we to have had this conversation today, learning, growing, and being inspired together. I am so grateful to have had this time with you. And if you like what you heard, please share it with a friend, family member, neighbor, or what the heck, share it with a stranger. (laughs) And if you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and review this show on your favorite podcast player. If you have any questions, suggestions for future guests you'd love to hear from, comments, or feedback for me, you can reach me directly at everydayawesomewithtrishag at gmail.com. Thanks for listening and let's make every day awesome.